Let's turn to Matthew chapter 7 this morning, a text that we started last week, Matthew 7, beginning in verse 7. Somebody once said that prayer is the gymnasium of the soul. If that's true, when was the last time you had a good workout? I mean a good workout. Howard Hendricks tells a story about a family that lived in Dallas, Texas, where he lives, The family had fallen on hard times. There were four kids in this family. The youngest was a boy named Timmy. Well, at evening prayer time, Timmy said, Dad, do you think Jesus would mind if I prayed and asked him for a shirt? He said, why, of course not, Timmy. You could ask Jesus for anything. Let's pray for that tonight, and we'll write it in our prayer journal. And so Dad wrote the words, Uh, in the prayer request journal, shirt for Timmy. And then he added, size seven. Well, they prayed every day for weeks and weeks on end till one Saturday afternoon, a gentleman called the house and spoke to the mother. He was a clothier. And uh, he said, I know that uh, you have four kids and we have our July clearance sale and I was wondering if you could use some things for your children. She said, what do you got? He said, I have some shirts. She said, what size? He said, seven. She said, how many shirts do you have? He said, I got 12 shirts, size seven. He gave them to the family. That night as they prayed, Timmy spoke up and he said, and don't forget to pray for the shirt. And Daddy said, Timmy, we don't need to pray for the shirt. How come? Because Jesus answered your prayer. He did? And Dad came out with a shirt wrapped up in a package, size 7, laid it on the table, and Timmy's eyes got as big as saucers. Then Dad got all 12 shirts and stacked them up, one on top of each other on the table. Now, by this time, Timmy thinks God's going into the shirt business. (laughs) The point of the story, as Hendricks tells it, is that there's a little boy in Dallas, Texas, who believes there's a God in heaven who's concerned enough about boys to get him a shirt. Twelve of them. What did Timmy learn from that cool lesson? He first of all learned that God answers prayers. God hears in heaven. God answers Even the prayers of little boys. I would say especially the prayers of little boys. And Timmy learned that God is generous. That he is able to do, as Paul wrote, exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we can ask or think. The issue is, as we started looking at it last week, the issue is, do we ask? You have not because you ask not, James said. Or have we truly relegated prayer to some feeble religious exercise? Do we really believe that it works? If we were to think this morning about the end of the Cold War, the end of communism as we know it, if we were to ask who's responsible for that, we might come up with certain political names like Mikhail Gorbachev or Ronald Reagan and say, It was those two who precipitated those events, and they're responsible for that. What you might not know is that back in 1982, Brother Andrew, 
called upon Christians worldwide to start, in his words, a seven-year prayer march around the walls of communism. In other words, let's pray that God would tear down the Iron Curtain. And the world was surprised in 1989 to 1991 when it all unraveled. And then names like Gorbachev and Reagan were given the honor But Christians had been praying and believing that there is a God in heaven who not only gives shirts, but can take down iron curtains as well. Look with me at verse 7. Let's refresh our memory with these verses. Ask, Jesus says, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So last week and this week is part one and part two of a message that I've called Talking to the God Who Answers Prayer. And last week, we only had enough time to look at verse seven and verse eight. And we noticed last time the promise of answered prayer, that The nature of this promise comes with a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not a plea. It's not a recommendation. It's a command. Ask. It's in the imperative. Seek. Knock. And we also notice the nature of the promise giver. That God, through Jesus, gives us this promise because God loves to bless his children. Loves to honor their requests. So... We looked at the promise of answered prayer, and last week we looked at and ended with the prerequisites of answered prayer. It's not just an automatic statement given to anyone on earth. Go ahead and just ask stuff from God and you'll get it. But we saw that there are prerequisites. That first of all, you have to be a legitimate kid, a legitimate child of God. It's a promise given to disciples. We saw that It was not only given to God's kids, but God's dependent kids. You ask him, you seek, you knock. We saw that it's a promise given to God's persistent kids, his vigilant kids, and finally his compliant kids. That's where we ended and zeroed in last week, just to refresh your memory. Today we continue it, and we look at now the pattern for answer prayer and the purpose for answered prayer. There is a pattern that God gives, and there's a purpose. Let's look at the pattern. Look back now at verse 9. Or what man is there among you, who if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will he give him a serpent? To show God's graciousness in answering prayers, Jesus takes an illustration, an example from common everyday life that everyone in that audience 
would be sure to be familiar with. A son asking dad for daily provision. It's a son who depends on his father for sustenance. Dad, can I have a loaf of bread? That was the common food for the day. Can you imagine dad giving a stone to his child? Now, in those days, the way bread was cooked, you could probably hold some stones up to some loaves of bread and they would look the same. They looked very similar to each other. Now, I've had some bread that you'd swear was a stone, but that's not the issue here. You can't imagine, can you, a dad and son on a trip to McDonald's and the boy orders a Big Mac and dad takes it and while the kid isn't looking, pulls the burger out and puts a flat stone in it and says, <laughs> here. That, that would be cruel. You, you'd, break, you'd break his teeth and you'd break his heart because that child has come to trust father implicitly for anything and everything. And here's the point. The God that you have come to trust isn't in the business of playing tricks on his kids. And the pattern is that of a child, an earthly child and an earthly father. Then in verse 10, or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? Now, just let's bring something up and then we can put it aside. If you look at Luke's gospel, Jesus asks a third question that Matthew doesn't insert here. What son, if he asked his father, he says, for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? It's the same idea, but just a different illustration. And by the way, there were some scorpions in those days. They were pale colored that when they were at rest and curled up, you couldn't tell the difference between that and a small egg. But again, the idea would be for the purpose of deception. Here in verse 10, the question is, okay, here's a boy saying, dad, can I have fish for lunch? Thanks, Dad. Uh, Dad, why is there a rattle in my sandwich? Dad wouldn't put a snake in there. Now, the best idea and the uh, background of this is not an actual serpent that's alive that would bite the child, but snake meat cooked to look like normal meat. In other words, Dad's pulling a fast one on the sun. It's all deception. You see, according to the book of Leviticus, there were certain things that were unkosher to eat, and one of them was the sea eel, and that's the, that's the language here. If his son asked for a fish, would he reach down and get him an eel that uh, could be cooked and placed as a fish, and it would be disguised as if to deceive the child? Now, why would that be a problem? Because it's unlawful, it's unkosher. No loving Jewish father, Jesus is saying, would get his son to dishonor God by doing something like this. And the main thrust is God doesn't trick, God doesn't deceive his children. Even a normal, everyday father wouldn't do that. Why? Because there's a father-son relationship of intimacy and trust. When my son was growing up, and our church was thriving and growing up as well in Albuquerque, I told my son, I said, Nate, you can come into Dad's office anytime you feel like it. And I would always tell the secretaries, if it's my son, let him in. Well, what if you have counseling? Let him in anyway. And my rationale is I don't want my son growing up thinking Dad's too busy, too isolated, and other people are more important than his son because he's always got busy people in his office. And so you know what? He did it. He took advantage of it. 
There'd be times where somebody would be in the office and they'd even have an emotional breakdown. Nathan come in, hey, Dad, what's up? And it was a little bit awkward, and I explained to uh, the people what was happening, and they understood. But I always wanted him to know, you're my son. You have a different relationship with me. You can come anytime. By the way, there was a Roman emperor who was going through his town, Rome. And you know probably that Roman emperors, when they would come home from a battle, would bring the spoils of war and would take the prisoners of war and march them through the city of Rome in this big, grand regalia. Well, this emperor was moving through the streets of Rome with his entourage, with his spoils of war, and with his prisoners. And soldiers were around the parade to keep people away. Well, up on the platform near the Colosseum was the emperor's wife and son. That little boy saw dad coming down the streets, the emperor on his horse, and he ran through the crowds and tried to get past a soldier. And the soldier stopped him and said, hey, son, you can't get through here. Don't you know who's up in that chariot? That's the emperor. And the little boy said, oh, he may be your emperor, but he's my daddy. Uh, That's the thought that's embedded in these verses. He's your heavenly father. Even human dads will show special kindness to their children. And that is the pattern for answered prayer, the example Jesus used. Look at verse 11. He applies it all. If you then, being evil, now some of you might look at that and bristle a little bit like who does he think he's talking to he's talking to you and me know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him simply a comparison between sinful humanity and sinless deity it's the comparison he's not speaking of specific fathers in the audience he's speaking of People, fathers in general, sinful, fallen humanity. By the way, this is one of the strongest scriptures in all of the Bible to show the depravity of man, that man by nature is evil and needs to be born again. The term evil, if you then being evil, paneros is the Greek word. It means evil by nature or having an evil condition. It's simply a description of all people of all times since the catastrophic fall of Adam in the garden years before. When Adam and Eve sinned, they released, let's call it a spiritual virus, into the bloodstream of humanity that is worse than the AIDS virus. This is pandemic. It's the SIN virus. It affects everyone. That's the nature of mankind. If you then, being evil by nature or condition, on this physical human plane can do that for your children, then let's compare the perfect, sinless Heavenly Father. And notice the the term he uses, much more. You see that? If you can do that, if you can do that with your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Jesus liked that phrase, it seemed when he was making a comparison. Go back to chapter 6 in verse 30. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more, 
Clothe you, O you of little faith. So, here is the most selfless relationship among humans, that of a, of a parent with a child. And this paternal relationship, when you compare that to the relationship you have with your Heavenly Father, this one here is much more in terms of love and graciousness. If God can clothe field grass, will He not much more clothe you? If uh, fallen fathers can love and honor their children's request, much more will your Heavenly Father do it to you. Question. That's a great promise, but how do we know He will? How do we know He will? Now think about this. Because He has already met your greatest need ever, which is what? Forgiveness, salvation. If God has met your greatest need ever, which was salvation and forgiveness, the rest is chump change, folks. That's what Paul said. He said, you say Paul said chump change? No, but in in so many words. In Romans 8, verse 32, Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not then with him also freely give us all things? God is in the business of giving good gifts, all things to his children. Now, I will say, sometimes those good gifts are very well disguised. And we wonder when we get this gift, thanks a lot, God. That's a gift? You had to let me go through this? You love me? What is this? A son was graduating from college. His father was very well off. Son had been in a showroom when he saw a sports car, and he thought that that would be a great graduation gift for my dad to get me for graduation coming up. And he told his father so. The day before graduation, Dad called Son into his study to give him his graduation present. It was a small, nicely wrapped box, and he handed it to his son. He said, I'm so proud of you. Son was curious at this gift and disappointed. He wanted the car. He opened the box, and it was a a beautifully leather-bound Bible with his name inscribed in it, embossed. And the son looked at the Bible, looked at his dad, and he put the Bible down on the table and he said, I can't believe it with all the money you make and I get a Bible for graduation. Thanks, Dad. Well, son left the house after graduating, became very successful, had his own family, didn't see his dad. As the years wore on and he heard his dad was ill, he thought that little tinge of guilt conviction. I better go home and see my dad before I never see him again. Just then he got a phone call. His dad had passed away. He died and he left everything to his son. The boy went home to take care of uh, the arrangements and he was going through his dad's study and he saw still there that brand new Bible still in its box. And he opened it up. Tears filled his face and he opened it up And the page was marked and underlined was verse 11 
for his son. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? As he was reading that, out from the back cover dropped a set of keys. It was that same dealership's name on it, and it was the keys to the sports car, saying the date, happy graduation, and the words paid in full. It was a gift disguised as something else. And so God gives good gifts to those who ask Him. And we get a gift someday, and it might be a a bill. It might be a disease. It might be a change of circumstances. It might be a trial. And we go, how could you, with all that you have, Father knows best. Now, I want you to look at verse 12. This is where this paragraph ends. This now is that final point, the purpose of answered prayer, and here it is. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, this verse is the Mount Everest. It's the pinnacle of the Sermon on the Mount. This is, without a doubt, the most famous thing Jesus ever said. People know about this verse. It's called the Golden Rule. Unfortunately, we have isolated this verse from its context. We have done disservice to this verse historically. We have placed it in little greeting cards, and it's on plaques, and we memorize it, and we cut it off from the context that it's in. There's a little word that we often leave out when we quote it. It's the first word. Look at it. Therefore. Now, we've we've gone through this before. Every time there's a therefore, find out what it's there for. So the fact that the sentence begins with a therefore shows it's not a new thought. It's a thought tied to the previous thought. And what's the previous thought? The previous thought is you have a father in heaven who graciously answers prayers. And just like a, a father to a child would extend that graciousness because of the love and trust and dependence, you have a heavenly father that will give you whatever you ask for, whatever you need. Therefore... Just like your father would be good and gracious to you, you be good and gracious to them, to others. You see now, the purpose for answered prayers isn't so that we can hoard up a bunch of blessings and go, my God's better than your God. But God's been so good to me, I have to be so good to you. That's the thought. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. God is the example of generosity. He's the model because he answers our prayers and cares for us. There was a naval officer. He had been in the Navy, and and he had been overseas for about two years away from his family, his his daughter and his wife. And uh, he was coming home. And... uh, his wife uh, decided that uh, she would let her husband know the kind of prayers that the daughter had been praying. And so sent him a letter. And here was the child's prayer. Dear Lord, please send me a baby brother so we'll have something to surprise Daddy with <laughs> when he gets home. Now, that certainly would have been quite a surprise to Daddy if he came home after two years and found a baby brother. And, of course, she didn't understand the ramifications of her prayer, but, but the underlying motive was pure. 
That is, God, please answer my prayer so that it would bless someone else. I want my daddy blessed. And that's the thought here. In Ephesians 5, Paul writes, Be imitators of God as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Here's the point. You know it well. Like father, like son, or like father, like daughter. Reflect his nature. This love in this verse is the kind of love that separates Christianity from every other religion. This principle is never found in any other religious systems. Not Buddhism, not Taoism, certainly not in Islam. Now you you may hear that and go, no, wait a minute. I've heard this saying in other philosophies and world religions. Sort of yes. Sort of yes. You've heard it perhaps, but only in the negative. This is what I mean. In the Talmud, in the Jewish book of, uh, uh, of principles and uh, illustrations, Rabbi Hillel wrote, What is hateful to you, don't do to anyone else. Here's what Confucius said. Do not do to others what you don't wish done to you. This is what the Greeks, Stoics said. What you don't want done to you, don't do to anyone. And the Buddhist hymn of faith records... Putting oneself in the place of others, kill not, nor cause to kill. So all of those statements that sound sort of like that are all in the negative. Here's Jesus. He puts it in the positive. He didn't say, don't do that. He says, do to others what you want them to do to you. You say, well, what's the difference? Huge difference. Huge difference. Let me illustrate in the field of music. Back in the 1600s, the chief instrument was the harpsichord. Harpsichord had a bunch of strings, sort of like a piano, and the note was pushed and plectrums plucked the strings, made the vibrations like a guitar. Now, it was slow, it was cumbersome, the notes weren't always pure, it was very limiting. In the 1800s, or 18th century, late 1700s, somebody came up with a cool idea, let's improvise, let's take out the plectrums and put hammers in there, it'll be fast. That's called a piano. It changed music dramatically to take it from a harpsichord to a piano. So all these other religious systems are playing sort of the similar notes. Jesus came along and invented the piano. And it changed everything from that point on. To put it in the negative is self-preserving. It's self-oriented. It's utilitarian. Don't hurt me so I won't hurt you. But to go out of your way and show love because you have a God that shows love, that separates the men from the boys, the minor leagues from the big leagues. In 1 John chapter 3, whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. John knew That love must become not just a negative force. I don't kill anybody. Ooh. I haven't lied this week. (laughs) Wow, you're amazing. I haven't raped, pillaged, or done anything like that. Wow, what a... Hey, what do you do? Love must be a positive force. 
There was a guy, he saw a gal, he wanted to win her heart, he thought of ways to do it, he was a little shy, so he wrote letters. He wrote a letter every week, but he never came by. Then he started writing a letter every day, but he never came by. Six to seven letters per week, but he never came by. Then he started upping the writing to three letters every 24 hours. That's a lot of mail, 700 letters altogether. But he never once came by. You know what happened? She ended up marrying the postman. (laughs) He came by. Love has to come by. Love has has to be incarnational. You do it in person. So this beautiful golden rule is tied to the previous because this is God's relationship to us. Therefore, do to others. So... I was thinking about this this week, and uh, I was thinking that for Jesus to say this, because this also is a command, it's the present active imperative, as a lifestyle, this is my command to you, do continually to others what you want them to do to you. As I read this, I couldn't help but think in realizing that, that the disciples of Jesus Christ must have an enormous capacity to love. If Jesus would give us this kind of a commandment, it means that we can do it. He would empower us to do that. That the love that's been shown to us, we're receivers of it. We're now to be distributors of it. So just like, you know, Timmy learned about God and shirts, that God is generous, the big lesson is I must too be generous. God doesn't need to be cajoled to answer prayers. Do you need to be bugged, pushed, prodded before you do good to others? Now, what I'm going to ask you to do is think and evaluate in your own mind, no elbow moving at this point to anyone else, and don't even think, I know someone who needs this tape, but think of your own life and think of your own generosity and love when it comes to the body of Christ, when it comes to friends, when it comes to, here's my hard part, driving the roads of Orange County, especially the freeways, Think about your own love to other people when you're in the parking lot before church and after church. And then think about your own spouse to whom you made a commitment till death do us part. If prayer is the gymnasium of the soul, my prayer for us is that we'll be buff. We'll get a good workout. It'll show. And that that... That kind of love, relationship, and generosity that we experience from our Father through that relationship of prayer would be worked out in our relationship with other people. That the way we love would reflect the way God loves us. I want to close with something that I thought was appropriate because it's personal. Dr. Richard Selzer is a surgeon. After an operation, this is what he writes. I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted and palsy, clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be this way from now on. The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut that little nerve Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. 
Who are they? I ask myself. He and this wry mouth that I have made, whose gaze, who gaze at and touch each other so generously, so greedily. The young woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this? She asks. Yes, I say, it will. It's because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. All at once, I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with a god. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth, and I am so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers and show her that their kiss still works. Isn't that lovely? That's lovely on any level. It's lovely on a, on a level of a husband and wife. It's lovely on the level of a friend who would say, I accommodate my life because I want it to help you. Because, because there's a therefore in that verse that says, if I have a God who doesn't deceive or play tricks on me, but he loves me and is committed to me, therefore, I'm going to do something for you to show you his love. And so, Heavenly Father, we have seen this golden rule is not to stand as an isolated golden nugget, but it's tied to a greater vein of truth from which answered prayer flows from the throne of grace and touches us. Lord, we have been recipients of so many blessings that it's really impossible for us to keep counting them. Where we live, how we live, what we have, all of these things, the relationships in our lives, the way you've answered our prayers, causes us to depend wholeheartedly upon you, but to fall in love with you, then to reflect that love to others. I pray that our prayer life would have a therefore attached to it that would be seen in the way we treat others. And Lord, if the way we treat others isn't all that good, then maybe it stems with the relationship we have or don't have with you. Show us, Lord, what to do with that, to draw close to you, to draw near in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.